Hello there. My name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor of Lumworth Road Church. I want to take a minute and say thank you so much for streaming our service today. We hope and trust you'll be blessed by watching it and that you will have a meaningful encounter with Jesus. Just a few things to note here before the service starts. And the first thing is, you can stay connected with us through the YouVersion Bible app. If you download the app and go to events, it will show you a map of Columbus. Just find Lidmore Road Church and then click on it. Then you'll be able to see sermon notes and announcements and song lyrics for the worship time. There's also a connect card on there and you can fill that out with any prayer request or questions you might have. Also, as a way to stay connected and stay up to date, I want to encourage you to check out our website, linworthroadchurch.com. On there, you can watch previous messages, learn about the different ministries and resources we offer, find out information on upcoming events, and you can give financially online as well. And so again, thank you for watching. Enjoy the service. My name is Ian Spencer, and um, as uh, a church at Linworth, we've been going through the Songs of Jesus by um, Tim Keller as a daily devotional. And so I'm going to read a short passage from there, um, some of his comments on it. Passage of Psalms uh, 78, 54 through 58 says, And so he brought them to the border of his holy land, to the hill country his right hand had taken. He drove out the nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. 
They did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. Tim Keller writes, Idolatry, the epitome of Israel's failure, is the people turned from the living God to worship idols. Idolatry is foundationally what is wrong with the human race. Anything that is functionally more important to you than God is an idol. Anything you love more than God, even a good thing like a spouse or a child or a social cause, is a false god. But we love them too much. We are racked with uncontrollable fears and anger when they are threatened and inconsolable despair when we lose them. Until you can identify your idols, you cannot understand yourself. Until you turn from them, you cannot know and walk with God. When I uh, read this uh, a few weeks ago, I was challenged thinking about the idols that I have within my own life. We often see idols portrayed um, in, the, in movies or TV or um, as we read about them in scripture as statues of gold that people would um, go and make sacrifices. And we don't see that often today, but the idols that we have within our own lives aren't anything that we dedicate too much of our time to. Um, sometimes I like to think of them uh, as um, how I would act or how I would respond if I didn't have them anymore. Um, could be something that you hold too tightly, like family or relationships, a job or a cause that you're a part of, um, or I think for most of us, our phones. So I'd ask, what are the idols within your, within your life? What's luring your time, your thoughts, and your energy away from the Lord? Charles Spurgeon wrote, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. All the things that we hold so tightly um, on this earth leave us empty, but holding firm to the person of Jesus is what will leave us satisfied. I'm going to read the prayer that um, Tim wrote in the Songs of Jesus. That's in your Bible app after the first song if you want to um, open that up and read with me. Lord, I am prone to turn to good, good things into idols, things I should merely receive with thanks. I look to for the contentment and safety that only you can give. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Amen.
good to see you this morning. Uh, I also want to say hello to those of you who are watching online. I'm so glad all of you are joining us here today. Uh, before we look at our passage this morning, though, I wanted to start off by asking you a question. And the question is this. Have you ever had to face a really difficult and hard situation that you knew was going to involve either intense physical pain or emotional pain? And in that moment, right before Everything in you wanted to get out of it. Now, as you think about that question, perhaps some of you uh, moms out there, maybe you're remembering uh, the way that you felt right before you went into labor with your first child, Uh, especially those rock stars of you who did it without pain meds, right? Like maybe you were feeling like, I I don't know if I can do this. I don't want to do this. Or maybe some of you are thinking about a difficult conversation uh, that you had in the past. Maybe it was a confrontational one. Or maybe some of you are thinking about the death of a close family member and how afterwards you did not want to plan everything. You didn't want to have to go through all of that you have to go through with picking out a casket and and going through the funeral and all of that. I know for me as a pastor, I've had a few moments like that in my life. Certainly uh, leading up to the first funeral I presided over, I felt that way. As well, I felt that way the first time I had to walk into a hospital room and comfort a single mom whose son young son had just been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so certainly to varying levels, I'm sure all of us have had moments and seasons in our lives where we were facing and on the cusp of a very difficult situation or event. And again, in that moment, everything in us not wanting to go through it. Now on a much lighter note, one situation like this, which I have not personally uh, experienced yet, but I know that it's coming for me, And I know that many of you have already had this joy, and that is what's known as the colonoscopy, right? Man, what a bummer, but it saves lives, and so that's why we do it. But uh, earlier this week, I asked a a friend of mine in my life group this question that I started off with, and she said, well, actually, I I wrote something about this once, and she shared with me a devotion that she wrote on her uh, personal blog, which talked about this very thing, and it was so well-written that I decided I was going to read some of it to you. She writes this. Nothing calls for moral support quite like the gruesome battle of a colonoscopy preparation. Both my mom and my dad have a family history of colon problems, so they are urged by their doctor to undergo a surgical colon screening, a colonoscopy, every three to five years. In preparation for each procedure, they must consume only clear liquids for two days and then drink 64 ounces of a cleansing elixir with a wicked taste that washes their systems completely clean. What follows are late nights filled with lots of diarrhea. I don't know how I was nominated to be the designated colonoscopy support child, but I was indeed nominated multiple times. I distinctly remember standing at the kitchen table with my mom as she eyed with revulsion the 64-ounce jug of digestive poison she was required to drink. She would look at me and say, I don't want to do it, Rebecca. I don't want to. It's the most disgusting taste known to man. Why can't I wait another year? Couldn't I just fast more days? And I would sympathetically remind her of her increased risk of colon cancer and the importance of following directions in order 
to catch any abnormal developments early. She could do this, and it would all be over soon. She would grimace, close her eyes, grasp the jug, and gulp. And I would cheer as she set it down, her face something akin to Edvard Munich's The Scream. And we would rest for a few minutes, but return to repeat the process each hour until her jug was empty and mom's inner pipes were squeaky clean. Poor mommy. She continues uh, and writes this. I've never been required to literally drink anything nearly as nasty as my parents' colonoscopy preparation beverage. But figuratively, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I have found myself at many times facing some nasty cups. And in those moments, I have internally raised some of the same objections my mom raised as she faced the jug. Nothing in me wants to do this. You don't have any idea how revolting this is. Surely there's another way. Now, Rebecca goes on, and I wish I could read the whole thing, but she goes on in that blog post to reflect on the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And the reason for that is because what we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus himself was in the same kind of a place. Jesus was facing a very difficult situation, a situation which would involve both intense physical and emotional and spiritual pain. And as he was getting ready to enter into that, he began to wrestle with his father in prayer. And he began to have ex- uh, express feelings of, I don't want to do this. Surely there's another way. And so let's look at that now. I want to invite you to go ahead and uh, look in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We'll start in verse 39. Uh, you can follow along in the Bible app. But before we start reading, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for just this morning, Lord, the sunshine and the the breeze. Father, thank you that we can gather today as your church. And thank you that we can come to, together under the banner of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would uh, help us to see wonderful things out of your word. I pray that you would prepare our hearts here to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we'll be here in Luke 22 um, to kind of guide us through our passage this morning or to walk us through it. We're going to look at four different scenes in our story. We'll look at the plea, the prayer, the kiss, and the clash. And so starting with the plea, look now at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Okay, so if you remember where we left off last week, Jesus had just finished giving his final instructions and teaching to his disciples at the Last Supper. And now they have left the upper room. And what Luke tells us here in verse 39 is that they are leaving the city of Jerusalem and they are headed to their usual spot, which he says here is the Mount of Olives. Now, Luke has already told us this information back in chapter 21 and verse 37 when he said this. He said, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And so again, this is the location where Jesus and his disciples, where they were sleeping while in town in Jerusalem for uh, the Passover. Now again, back at our passage this morning, Luke tells us there that they're at the Mount of Olives, but then he mentions this more specific location by saying, when they reach the place in verse 40. Now what is the place that Luke is talking about? Well, we know from the other gospels that the place was known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I've not been to Israel personally, but my understanding, and Tom, you can correct me afterwards, but my understanding is that Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives, and it's a kind of tree orchard garden, if you will. And it has lots and lots of olive trees throughout it. And again, based on what Luke tells us here, this appears to be the location where Jesus and his disciples would sleep each night. And the reason that that's important is because Judas would have known that information, which would make locating Jesus and betraying him a lot easier. And so they get here, they get to the garden. And then in verse 40, we see that Jesus pleads with his disciples and he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. You see, Jesus here, he knows exactly what's around the corner. He knows what's about to take place in just a few short moments. 
But it's obvious as you read the text that the disciples still have no idea what's happening. Even though all throughout this passion narrative, Jesus has told them over and over again that he's about to die, that he's going to the cross, and that one of them will betray him to the religious leaders. And yet even still, they appear to be clueless. And so Jesus pleads with them to pray and to prepare themselves for what's about to take place. Now we'll see in just a minute that uh, they ignore Jesus' plea, and instead of praying, they fall asleep. And he has to go and wake them up, and he once again pleads with them to pray, but by then, it'll be too late. And so this is our first scene, the plea, but let's move on now to the next section, and that is the prayer. Pick it up in verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so what we see here is that Jesus separates himself a little bit away from the disciples in order to pray. We learn in the other gospels that he takes his inner circle of Peter, James, and John with him, and he commands them to watch while he goes just a little bit farther in order to pray by himself. Now, in terms of what exactly he prays, we see here that Jesus is struggling, that there's this very real part of him that does not want to go through this. Again, the other gospels, I think, illustrate this a little more. In Mark's account of the story, he says this, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, again, with a passage like this, we must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. And a passage like this emphasizes his humanity, and it shows us that Jesus was a real human being with real emotions. Again, like we said at the beginning of this series in Luke, and I'm sure you all remember since it was like two years ago, but, but what we said at the beginning was Jesus, while living his life on the earth, he didn't cheat. In other words, Jesus didn't rely on his divinity to get him through hard situations. No, he really was, as the book of Hebrews tells us, a faithful and a merciful high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. And yet, what Hebrews goes on to say as well is that he was without sin. So he was like us, except for that part that he was without sin. And so what we see here is that Jesus is struggling. He's expressing his desire to not go through this, but ultimately, he gets to the place of surrender where he can say, not what I will, not what I want, but what you will and what you want, Father, that is what I'll do. You see, if Jesus would have, if, if, if instead he would have been like, you know what, I don't want to do this, Father, and actually I'm not going to do it, I'm, I'm not going to go through with it, then he would have been guilty of sin. But instead, Jesus said, Father, I don't want to do this, and I'm asking and I'm double-checking, is there another way? But if there's not another way, then, Father, I submit myself to your will. And really, that's a major part of what prayer is and what prayer is for. You see, there are times in prayer where we ask God for things and he gives us what we ask for. But then there are other times in prayer where instead of changing God's mind and getting something we ask for, God changes our mind and he brings us into alignment with his will. And that's what we see happening here with Jesus. He's struggling, he's praying, but ultimately he is submitting himself to the Father's will. Now before we move on, I think we need to ask the question, what is the cup referring to and why does Jesus want to avoid it? Well, most likely the cup here, was, it, it was, it's a metaphor that was used all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. And what it is, is it's a metaphor for a cup of suffering or a cup of God's wrath. And so let me just give you a couple examples here. Uh, one real obvious one is Isaiah 51, 17, which says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Another very similar one is Job 21, 20, which says, Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. 
And so certainly part of the reason Jesus was asking if the cup could be taken away was because of the suffering part of it, the physical pain that he would have to endure at the cross. But more than that, more than the physical pain, Jesus was asking if the cup could pass because in going to the cross, he would absorb God's, God the Father's wrath towards sin. And therefore, he would experience intense emotional and spiritual pain. You see, in going to the cross, Jesus Christ, he took on our sin. And in doing so, he felt the full weight of the wrath of God. As we have sang many times here in this church, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And so again, the cup we see here, it is the the physical pain, the torture of the cross, but it is even more so the wrath of God, which Jesus will experience and absorb on our behalf. Now, in general, Luke's account of this scene, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's an abbreviated version of the story compared to the other Gospels. In other words, what I mean is that his account is quite a bit shorter. But these next two verses are unique, however, to only Luke's account. And so let's read those now. After the helicopter passes. Verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay, so like I just said, these details are only recorded in Luke's gospel. And actually, if you look at them in your Bible or on the Bible app, you should see a footnote. And if you look at the footnote, it'll say something like this. Verses 43 and 44 are not in some of the earliest manuscripts. Now, we have addressed this kind of thing at length before in the past. It's what's referred to as textual criticism or textual variance. And I don't have time to get into it this morning, but, but let me just say this. Most scholars and Bible translators believe that even though these verses were not in some of the earliest manuscripts, they were indeed a part of Luke's original gospel. And like I said, if that, that might be really concerning to some of you, you can read about that more and study it later. But let's just assume for now that what was written, uh, that what we read here was written by Luke and that these events actually happened. And so with that in mind, what we see here is that Jesus is praying. And as he's praying, God the Father sends an angel to minister to him and to strengthen him. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like or what the angel did. But what we know is that this is not the first time something like this has happened in the life of Jesus. No, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it says there in Matthew chapter 4, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And so again, this was not unprecedented in the life of Jesus. However, though, if you look at the next verse, it seems like whatever the angel did, it did not relieve Jesus of his misery. Because look at what it says there in verse 44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so Jesus, as he prays, he continues to be in anguish even after the angel came to him. And he continues to press into the Father through prayer. And apparently he was in so much emotional distress and was praying so hard that his sweat actually was like drops of blood. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it could just simply mean that he was sweating so much that it was sort of pouring off of him as if he was bleeding. And so he's not actually bleeding, but it's just a way to describe how much he was sweating, kind of like what all of you are doing right now. Um, or it could mean, as some have suggested, that Jesus was experiencing a rare medical condition in which your blood capillaries uh, in your sweat glands, they actually rupture due to great emotional stress. And as a result, with that medical condition, you basically end up sweating actual blood. And so maybe that's what's going on here. I mean, Luke is a medical doctor after all, and it would make sense that he would include a detail like that. But, but either way, the point is, is that Jesus continues to be in great anguish and emotional distress, and therefore he continues to pray fervently. Let's move on, though, to our third section in the story, and that is the kiss. Pick it up in verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. 
Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but asked him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Well, if the angel did not inform Jesus that he was going to have to drink the cup, then certainly Judas and the crowd coming to arrest him was Jesus' answer to his prayer. You see, Jesus is going to have to drink the cup. This is the Father's will for him. And so as he's talking, as he's uh, you know, waking his disciples up from their sleep and urging them to pray once more, he's interrupted because here comes Judas, one of his very own, leading a, a crowd to come and arrest Jesus. And apparently Judas had worked out beforehand with the religious leaders and the temple guards some sort of sign that he would do in order to identify which one was Jesus. Since it was going to be, you know, dark and they obviously didn't have street lights. And so here would, you know, Jesus would be in the midst of 11 other guys. And so, again, Judas came up with this sign, which was a kiss. And the thing about a kiss is that it was the normal way of greeting a friend and, and clearly, you know, so clearly they didn't have COVID back then and they were able to touch people. But, but this was the normal greeting. And it was something that Judas had probably done dozens of times with Jesus. And yet this time, instead of greeting Jesus, instead of showing affection to Jesus, this time it was in order to betray him. As commentator Daryl Bach wrote, the kiss, a sign of affection, has become a sign of defection. And in response to this, Jesus, very much aware of what's going on, asked Judas a rhetorical question. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think what Jesus is doing here by asking that question is he's highlighting the horror of being betrayed by a close friend. You see, it's one thing to be stabbed in the back by an enemy, but it's quite another thing to be betrayed by someone you thought loved you and cared about you, and who even as they betray you, keep up the pretense by greeting you in the normal way. And yet this is exactly what Judas does here. And so this is our third section, the kiss. But let's go to our last section this morning, and that is the clash. Look what happens next, verse 49. Then, When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So Judas comes, he kisses Jesus. The guards apparently at that point move forward and they seize Jesus to arrest him. And as they do, the disciples finally wake up, right? Like they, they, they not only physically wake up, but they sort of mentally wake up and they realize what's happening. And they yell out, Lord, should we strike with our swords? But before Jesus could, you know, tell them no, one of them pulls out a sword and wildly swings it, probably aiming for someone's neck. But he instead misses and he slices off one of the guy's ears. And so because of that, Jesus has to uh, step in and he has to yell out, no more of this. But not only that, he actually goes a step further and he picks up the bloody ear off the ground and he reattaches and heals it to the man. I mean, what an amazing scene, right? Like this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus before going to the cross. If ever there was a moment to be selfish and to think of only yourself, now would be yet and yet even here in this moment, Jesus is thinking and serving others. Now, again, we have to look at some of the other gospels account of this story in order to fill in some of the details. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all keep the disciple who chopped the guy's ear off anonymous. But John, however, is fine with throwing Peter under the bus. He's like, yep, it was Peter, right? I mean, you're like, of course it was Peter. I mean, who else would it be? And I don't know about you, but when I read the gospel of John, I can't help but feel like there was a sense of competitiveness between Peter and John. I mean, like if you keep going on in John's gospel, after Jesus is risen, John mentions that he outran Peter to the tomb. Like, why, why does he need to mention that? It doesn't change the story. He's like, yeah, we both started off at the same time, but I got there first, so I'm, I'm faster. 
Um, late, as well, later on, even after, uh, again, after that story, Jesus is restoring Peter after he denied him. And, and with that, he tells Peter that when he's older, he's going to suffer and die. And, and of course, Peter turns and looks at John. He's like, well, what about John? How's John going to die? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus is like, don't worry about John. Worry about yourself. It's none of your business. And so whether I'm reading into it or not, I don't know. But either way, John tells us Peter is the guilty one who slices the guy's ear off. But not only that, John also gives us one more detail. He tells us the name of the guy who got his ear cut off. You see, the other gospels just say that it was the servant of the high priest. But John also adds that the guy's name was Malchus. And again, maybe this is conjecture, and I might be reading into this as well. But I've always wondered if the reason that John knew the guy's name was maybe perhaps uh, after having this amazing encounter with Jesus. After having his ear reattached and, and after being loved by Jesus, uh, even though in that moment this guy was Jesus' enemy, that just maybe after all of that, that later on this man maybe became a follower of Christ and was a part of the early church. Now, again, I can't prove that, but it's always struck me as curious, and I've often wondered how John knew his name otherwise. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know any of Mike DeWine's interns' names which is basically what this guy is, right? He's the, high, he's the uh, servant of the high priest. And so again, I think it would make perfect sense that John would know him if, in fact, this man became a believer and was a part of the early church. Now, we'll have to wait into heaven to see if I'm right, but either way, we know this guy's name. His name is Malchus. Now, right after healing Malchus, Jesus turns his attention to the rest of the mob, the, the crowd, and he basically rebukes them and calls them cowards. He says, why are you guys coming out here in in the dark with clubs and swords as if I was some sort of rebel or robber, when all week long I've been teaching out in the open at the temple. And you could have come for me then. But then Jesus finishes with, ah, but this is your hour. This is when darkness reigns. And what he's getting at there in that last sentence is he is making a connection between them and the evil cosmic forces that are at work behind the scenes. Again, we talked about this two weeks ago. In fact, one author wrote this. They said, Jesus' rebuke specifically links the temple officialdom with Satan's dominion and its moral darkness. They will have their hour, but it is an hour that will only last until the resurrection. And so this is the clash, both a clash between Jesus' disciples and the crowd and also a clash between Jesus and Satan. And as we wrap up here this morning, I just want to spend a few moments thinking about What does all of this mean for us today? What can we learn from this story? I'm sure there are multiple lessons that we could pull from a passage like this. But for me, the one main lesson that I kept coming back to over and over again as I studied this week was this. Just like Jesus, you and I are called to submit ourselves to the will of the Father by trusting him, even and maybe especially when things are hard. You see, I don't know about you or where you're at today, but I would say for me, life's kind of hard right now, right? Like, like if I'm being honest, it's not very enjoyable. Uh, like I was with a couple from church uh, two weeks ago, and, and when the wife saw me, she asked how I was enjoying ministry lately. And I looked at her, and I smiled, and we both kind of laughed, and I said, well, I wouldn't say I'm suicidal, but I've definitely had feelings of thinking that death would be a nice escape from all of this. Now, again, don't, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm just... Again, I was being honest with how I felt in the moment. And in that conversation, we went on to talk about how uh, difficult everything is right now, especially if you're in a place of leadership, and maybe specifically in church leadership. I mean, we're having to make decisions that impact people's lives. Obviously, we got the whole COVID thing right now, and there's various issues and decisions around it. And no surprise, you all have a lot of different opinions about that that don't always agree with each other. And not only that, though, there's also political and societal issues around us. And then if that wasn't bad enough, the last few years have given us a constant flow of news of one Christian leader after another disqualifying themselves. And so, again, things are maybe not super great right now. But I, I, you know, I know it's not just me or it's not just those in church leadership. I know that many of you are feeling the same things. And I think part of what makes things hard right now is all of the unknowns. Right? I mean, like, how, how long is COVID going to last? When will things get back to normal? Will there ever be a normal? I'm sure some of you are struggling with questions of what to do with your kids this year with school. 
Should I homeschool? Should I go with the hybrid schedule? Should I just send them full time? How am I going to do all of these changes and work my full time job? I'm sure some of you are worrying about finances and, and what happens if and when I get laid off. Some of you are probably thinking about November's election and, and what will I do or what will happen if so-and-so gets elected. And again, with all of that, the way that it's impacted me and, and maybe the way it's impacted some of you is it, it causes us to have this feeling of wanting to escape, of wanting to not go through this. See, I keep thinking, man, it would be really nice if we could just fast forward through the next couple of years, right? Like, like I feel hopeful about the future, but can we just fast forward through the next maybe one or two years? And yet what the Lord has been challenging me on this week with this passage is this thought that just maybe, just maybe like Jesus in the garden, the Father's will right now is not for us to escape this or to run away from it, but maybe his will is for us to go through it and to endure it. You see, if, Jesus, if God wanted to, he could cause a vaccine or medication to be developed today that would end all of this. But perhaps... There are bigger purposes and reasons behind all of this that you and I can't see or understand right now. And again, instead of helping us escape it, God wants you and he wants me to endure it. He wants us like Jesus to submit to his will and to in that, in that reality to stay faithful. It's like what my good friend Kim Fallis always says. I think she only said it once, but I say she says it all the time. But, but it's this, it's okay to do hard things. And yet in order for us to do hard things, in order for us to walk through this and to remain faithful and steadfast, we are going to have to imitate Jesus and his example of leaning into the Father through prayer. You see, the passage this morning, it, I think it illustrates two things. It, it shows us the difference that prayer makes. It shows us the difference that prayer made in Jesus' life, but it also shows us what happens when you don't pray. You see, Jesus pleaded with his disciples to pray so that they would not enter into temptation. And yet instead of praying, they fell asleep. I'm sure some of you can relate to that, right? Like you, you have good intentions, you want to pray, and then you fall asleep. And because of that, when Judas and the religious leaders showed up, they were not ready. Instead of being prepared and ready, they were reactive, even to the point of violence, right? Like the the last thing Jesus would want them to do is to react violently. And yet because they were not prepared, that's how they responded. And it didn't, it didn't tell us this in Luke, but in the other gospels uh, and their accounts, it tells us that right after Jesus is arrested, all of the disciples run away and flee and they abandon him. We also know that right after this, Peter denies Jesus three times. And so the point I'm trying to make is this, perhaps if the, the, the disciples would have prayed instead of sleeping, Perhaps Peter would not have denied Jesus. Perhaps he wouldn't have reacted violently and chopped a guy's ear off. Perhaps the rest of the disciples wouldn't have fled and abandoned Jesus in his, uh, in his hour of need. You see, I think it was their lack of prayer that led them into temptation and failure. And yet, if you contrast that with Jesus, again, we saw that Jesus was struggling but because he took his emotions and his concerns to the Father through prayer, he was able to walk through the pain and suffering in such a way that he remained steadfast and faithful. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he's one of my favorite uh, people from church history. He was a, a Baptist pastor in the 19th century. He was so good with word pictures and quotes, and, and he wrote this about prayer. He says, prayer pulls the rope below. And the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope and boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. The man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all of his might. I just love that word picture. The, the dentist that I grew up going to had a, it was in an old church. And the, the bell was still in there, and they would let you, after you got your teeth cleaned, pull the bell. And what a great feeling, right? And I just love that word picture, like, yeah, you know, for me, I pulled the bell twice a year at my annual cleaning or my semi-annual cleanings. But if I want to win in heaven, i got to be the one who's just pulling on it continuously and boldly. And so my question for you and my question for me is this. How much are you praying right now? 
Are you taking your fears and your frustrations to the Lord in prayer, or are you complaining about them on Facebook and social media? Are we through prayer aligning our wills with the Father, or are we uh, escaping the current pain through entertainment or some other means? You know, Chris said this at the beginning of the whole COVID outbreak, that this could be a really defining moment for the church. And yet his question was, will it be a good defining moment or will it be a bad one? Will we be remembered for how we stepped up and how we loved people well and how we remained faithful and how, you know, under all the pressure, how we remained faithful? Or will we be remembered for something else? Now, look, I I know it's popular right now to criticize the church and to tear it down and to point out all of the all of its flaws and failures. However, though, I don't want to do that. I don't want this to be let's let's beat up the church and complain about, again, our flaws and failures. Instead, I want to believe the best. I want to pray and ask God to use this to bless the church and to make us more like his son, Jesus. Right. Like that's what our world needs right now. The world needs you and it needs me to be Jesus, to have the character of Jesus, to live out the actions of Jesus. You see, the bride or the church is still the bride of Christ. We are still the only ones who carry the unique message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so both as an individual Christian and also as a collective, I know that by God's grace and through prayer, you and I can be faithful. We can endure this hard season and we can even come out stronger and better than we were before. And the reason I know that is because Jesus himself was faithful. You see, today's story took place in a garden. But if you open your Bible to the beginning of Genesis, you see there's another story there about a garden. And yet in that story, it's about a guy named Adam who, while being tempted in a garden, he he failed. He gave in. He was unfaithful. However, though, today's garden story was about someone else, someone the Bible calls the new Adam. And this Adam, he was faithful. This Adam, he did what was right. And because he was faithful, and because he did what was right, you and I have the power through his spirit, which he has now poured out on us, to be faithful as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments together. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this story and how it it highlights and and shows us Jesus' full humanity. That again, he didn't just walk through life leaning into his divinity and and nothing was hard for him. No, he had moments of struggle. He had feelings of not wanting to walk through something hard. And yet, because he was a faithful high priest, he submitted himself to your will. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, the church, your bride, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be faithful. I pray you would help us to trust you and to, to, to continue to remain steadfast. And to endure hard things by your grace and through your spirit. And so I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chris is going to walk us through a few announcements. And then I'll close this with a final blessing. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. You know, we've been in Luke for a long time. And um, to really appreciate a story like this, it's been great to have all the background that has led us to this place to really appreciate the context of this beautiful story and a prayer that will always be answered, your will be done, Father. That is one prayer God will always answer. Your will be done. Thanks, Nick. Hey, friends, just a few announcements uh, as we close up here. Um, The financial peace class uh, called Leave Money Stress Behind is still happening. It's going to... begin this Tuesday. So again, there's information in your app as well as uh, on our e-letter about that. And also, we wanted to make sure, some of you have been saying we're having difficulty getting information. Again, we've changed the website a little bit. And again, just to make sure you know that where these links are. So the links, for example, for online giving, the link for our virtual connect card by which you can communicate prayer requests and needs to us. Uh, If you're looking for past online services or if you're looking for our recent evangelism series by video, again, 
check out the e-letter or check out the announcements in your app. All of the links there uh, are listed, and you can navigate uh, to find that. A couple more things in terms of finding information as well. Uh, Lisa wanted to convey for uh, families of our uh, kids' cross crew, kids, uh, remember that her information for cross crew is listed on Facebook in a cross crew site on our website. And at the bottom of each e-letter, there are, again, instructions and directions for our cross crew families. Also, she asked, uh, she gave a survey uh, regarding just what your needs are right now in terms of trying to minister to your kids in light of uh, uh, all the changes and so forth. So uh, parents, please fill that out and complete that. So again, we can just stay in line with what you're thinking in terms of how to, uh, to minister to you and to your kids during this time. And one more thing for parents uh, uh, connected to this. Here recently in the last couple of days, a couple of our uh, uh, families in our church that home educate, a couple of veteran families at that, they created a, uh, they had a Zoom call. Uh, we recorded that and we're going to put that online. So check the, again the online resource page this week. I know a lot of you right now, you're simply in the crux of trying to figure out what you're going to do educationally this fall in light of everything that's uncertain. So if you're contemplating that as an option, we have tons of resources. We've got a number of uh, folks in our church that are veterans at this. And so that will introduce you to some of those resources as well as some of those individuals that um, can help you and give you some guidance uh, if you're considering that home education as an option. So let's go ahead and stand. Nick will lead us in our final blessing. comes out of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.